This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill professor William Sturkey teaches a class about expanding rights in the 1960s and 70s, looking at women's liberation and the gay rights movement. So, the rights revolution today. Let's start with a little story. 1963, this woman, Sherry Finkbein, which is a pseudonym, it's not her real name, was featured in a Life magazine article. You see her up here from the article. The story was about a choice that her family was facing. She was pregnant. Um, Her husband had recently traveled to Europe where he acquired a drug called thalidomide. So thalidomide, which you see here behind me, had not been approved for use yet in the United States of America, but it was available in many European countries. It was used to treat a number of different things, anxiety, insomnia, and nausea. Nausea here is key. So women began taking it to alleviate morning sickness. And Sherry Finkbein's husband had been in Europe. He had acquired some of these pills and brought it back home for her. Obviously, he knows she's pregnant. And she takes about 40 of them during early on in her pregnancy. Finkbein and her husband did not know that thalidomide causes birth defects. But then she read an article about the drug. She found out a little bit more, and she called her doctor. Um, and she started to learn more about what thalidomide can do. For developing babies, children, thalidomide can cause brain damage, damage the eyes, the nose, ears, the face. It can also severely damage the growth of limbs. Um, In many cases, the children who had been affected by thalidomide did not survive at all. In England, about half of the thalidomide babies, as they're known, born with defects, died within a few months. Somewhere around 10,000 of these children were born in total, we think. Um, all across the world, mostly in Western Europe. So making this an incredibly dangerous drug before the problem was really discovered and the drug was later banned. So the issue here for Sherry Finkbein is this. So she has four children, and she calls her doctor when she starts to learn about what the drug can do. And her doctor says, come on in. And so she goes in, and he starts to show her pictures of some of these children who had been born to mothers who had taken the drug. And she said that she remembered feeling... Like someone telling you your child has been run over by a truck. Her doctor recommended an abortion, which was only legal in cases that might affect the mother's life to that point in time. And so Sherry Finkbein and her family are faced with a choice. Um, Do you have the child knowing that his or her life is going to be, might be incredibly difficult, provide an enormous financial burden on your family, um, an emotional burden as well for you and your other children? Um, or that the child might not survive past a few months anyway? Or do you follow your doctor's suggestion and go ahead and have an abortion? This is what Sherry Finkbein said. Naturally, I had misgivings. There is life there. Do I have the right to take it? But is it life when you can't dress yourself, run, walk, dance, play games, have dates? If I had no choice, I would have the baby. But I have the way to prevent this tragedy, this sadness. But then something happened here that removed that choice. A panel of doctors said that Mrs. Finkbein could not have an abortion in the state of Arizona. And so at the end of the day, that meant that she had to leave the country if she wanted to go ahead and have the procedure. Ultimately, the details here are not as important as the bigger, broader concept, that the choice was not hers and her family's to make. It was the panel of doctors or it was the state that got to make that choice. So this is at the heart of the issue of much of what we're going to talk about today. Not necessarily the details, right, but who gets to make that sort of a choice and how that changes. 
Should that choice, that's an incredibly difficult, ethical, moral, religious choice, be made by the family, by their doctor, by a team of doctors, by the government, by a group of people that don't even know the family, perhaps? Who knows? It is not my job, certainly, to tell you how to make that choice or who should make it. I think that's between every single, every family, their doctor, um, certainly perhaps their God. But so what I'm going to talk about is how that process changed in the United States of America. Okay, so that's much of what we're going to do today. And of course, this was part of a broader rights revolution in American society that fundamentally changed American society in the 1960s and 1970s. So we've been talking a lot about rights in the class, and we're going to sort of crescendo here with this rights revolution. One last sort of major change here. And one of the big differences between this and, say, the civil rights movement is that this is a rights movement that is calling on an expansion of what rights actually are. So the civil rights movement, if you recall, was largely about rights that were already guaranteed to African Americans that were just simply not being enforced, right? 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act were largely about Reconstruction Amendments. This is about asking the Constitution to essentially be expanded, to consider a different sort of rights. And that's what we'll talk about today as we close the book on the 60s. So I have a little generic 60s collage here. So the 60s were a complex decade. Um, They're really famous and they're remembered in a very particular way. When you all think of the 60s, even outside of this class or before this class, what do you, what do you think about 1960s? What, what comes to mind? Or what do you think comes to mind for many Americans? Disco and stuff? The whole the generation? Okay. Yeah, disco, dancing, music. What else? Civil rights. Sorry? Civil rights. Okay. Yeah, civil rights. Obviously a huge part. The assassination, John F. Kennedy, 1963, certainly not the only one. Anything else? The sexual revolution of the 60s. Okay, yeah, sexual revolution of the 1960s. And again, because we (laughs) cover so much in this class, I teach a class on the 60s itself, uh, but we're going to try and cover that here in the next 40 minutes or so that we have. So the 60s, generally speaking, one thing that's a big misconception of the 60s is that it was sort of revolution and chaos for everybody all the time. It was certainly not. For many Americans, the 1960s are basically this, a continuation of the 1950s, um, especially the early 1960s. So it's an era of prosperity. The median uh, family income in 1960 was $5,663, about $44,000 today. It's an era of security, um, upward mobility, and social, socioeconomic class. An era of high employment, 1960, the unemployment rate for men was 4.8%. For women, it was 5.4%. Consumerism and youth culture, suburban growth, rock and roll. And when we think about the 1960s, people think about something like Woodstock as a major cultural event. But the hippies and counterculture didn't have anything on the actual um, cultural flashpoints that most people experienced. The three highest grossing films in the 1960s, The Sound of Music, um, 101 Dalmatians, and The Jungle Book. You all have seen many of those movies, right? Disney dominates the 1960s because all the baby boomers going out wanting to go to movies. A, whole, a lot more people saw The Sound of Music than went to Woodstock. But of course, as we've talked about, the 1950s did not work for everyone. The 50s were good for many, but they had their problems for many other people. Um, re- racial limitations, Jim Crow in the South and housing segregation in the North. Poverty, as we've talked about before, one-fifth of all Americans lived in poverty at the end of the 1950s. 
Gender limitations, and this is one that we're going to really lean into today. Women simply did not have the same opportunities as men for employment and social advancement. There were also some unique disadvantages that women face. And then also conformity, boredom, doesn't work for everybody. Um, but the 1960s were also characterized by this incredible sense of optimism and hope. The sense of optimism of the 1960s is really incredible. So people from all walks of life, even the most downtrodden, disadvantaged people, poor black Southerners, you know, had never had voting rights, for example, are so hopeful because of America's place in the world and the rhetoric of many of its leaders. Um, some of the famous lines from the 1960s are just dripping in this sense of hope. John F. Kennedy, January 21st, 1961, Washington, D.C., and I quote, I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it, and the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Just the expansiveness of that optimism. Martin Luther King Jr., perhaps the most hopeful speech in American history, August 28, 1963. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be not judged by the, content, by the color of their character, color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So that is an incredible sense of optimism that many people share. And so we've had these moments so far where we've fixed some of these issues in the class and we'll dig in on sort of a new one today. So a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the civil rights movement, how that worked, the sit-ins, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Birmingham, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, etc. Jim Crow is dead. It's killed in the mid-1960s. The system that had existed since the New South that we talked about in this class. Black Southerners can vote. The Civil Rights Movement did not solve all racial problems in America, but it did fundamentally change the nation, and of course we should recognize that. Poverty. This great society. Equal Opportunity Act, Medicare and Medicaid help people that are susceptible to falling into deep debt because of their health care costs. We get housing grants, Higher Education Act, which of course affects all of you today. Um, the poverty rate declines rapidly in the 1960s. For some groups, the 1960s is the definitive moment of the decline of poverty in the history of America. Um, it helped people go to schools, receive job training, etc., and it remains, of course, an enormous part of our society. The Great Society did not end poverty by any stretch of the imagination. And, of course, that's one of the criticisms of it. But at the end of the day, we've never gotten back to poverty like that in this country ever since then. <clears throat> so we have some solutions already, but let's look at some other issues. And one that we're going to focus on today here are gender limitations, right? Especially gender limitations for women. So we talked about this in the 1950s, right after the midterm. Um, women's domestic roles. Do you all remember the kitchen debate? What was the, that kitchen debate about? Remember Richard Nixon, Nikita Khrushchev? What's, what's the whole point of the kitchen debate? What's up with women in the kitchen? I was talking about how um, in America the women's uh, place belongs in the kitchen and how like each appliance and like uh, products uh, kind of like describe her like identity in an American household. Okay. Yeah, anybody else want to add to that? Yeah. Also focused on how in America the uh, children were at the forefront, like the women were able to offer the children a safe place and educate them. Okay, yeah. So there's this notion that women's places in the kitchen with the children. 
And as benign as that might seem in some television shows and all of that, there's some real serious results here. There are some real serious problems. Um, Look, it's sheer sexism in some cases. A lot of people believe that women lack the intelligence, the talent, or even the emotional stability to perform many of the same jobs as men. Um, That women basically need a man to take care of them and manage the broader parts of their lives. And then that also they really don't have a broader role in society outside of rearing those children in the kitchen. And so, again, these are, they have real consequences here. It's not just sort of a moderate inconvenience, oh, shucks, I can't go to law school because I have to have the baby. Um, but it's real discrimination that limits women's freedom and affects the outcome and potential of their lives. Just some examples. In 1960, a credit card company could refuse to give a woman a credit card simply because she was a woman. You have a credit card in your pocket today? It was not always the case. <clears throat> Women could not serve on juries in every state. Um, you could not get birth control in every state. A woman could be fired from her job for becoming pregnant. Um, women could not go to many Ivy League law schools. Yale and Princeton did not admit women until 1969. <clears throat> so consider the opportunities that all the men that go to those schools <clears throat> get, that women are just instantly blocked from, all those career paths, whatever that might be. It's not a meritocracy. It's not competitive. It's no women allowed, quite literally. Um, Women did not receive the same pay for the same work as men, of course. Um, In many states, women, women by legal definition, could not be raped by their spouses, and they also could not unilaterally divorce their husbands. That means that legally, many women did not have recourse for a bad or dangerous marriage. That they were a severe, and of course, they were at a severe financial disadvantage if they tried to leave the marriage and they couldn't so much as get a credit card or a job. So many people were simply trapped. And then, of course, the unsaid restrictions. Who gets into law school? Who gets to become a doctor? Who gets promoted? Just this general outright sexism that limited women's ability to rise in society in the same way as men. And so, of course, many women, especially at this moment when we have this generational shift, these baby boomers coming up, being told that there is just endless possibilities for all of you, Um, They just want better lives. They don't want these artificial restrictions placed on their lives. They want better opportunities than their mothers had had. So, in response to these limitations, progressive women in the 1960s launched a civil rights movement of their own, um, largely understood and called second-wave feminism, um, also referred to as women's liberation movement. So we often call it second-wave feminism, because the first wave occurred during the progressive era, of course, the female dominion. We've talked about many of the changes that occurred in the 1910s. Um, Second wave feminism is largely inspired by the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement inspires a whole host of movements that come after it, okay? People see what people like Martin Luther King Jr. are doing, and they say, okay, we have a problem with our group too. We're going to launch a similar movement. So they use many of the same tactics, sit-ins, boycotts, marches, Um, In fact, many of the leaders actually were part of the civil rights movement before then joining the women's liberation movement. But of course, again, the the idea of rights here is a little bit different. One thing that's different is that they seek to expand the idea of rights. Not just say, be true to what you said on paper, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, but actually, no, these are rights that women should also have, even though they're not explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution already. So they build upon the leadership of older women's activists, um, but they're really sparked by this injection of of new energy, right? These baby boomers, this new sort of generation. And this movement begins in the early 1960s and lasts roughly through the late 1970s. Of course, you could argue for days with people about when it actually ends, if it's ever over, et cetera. Um, We don't really have time to get into that right now. But so the broad goals of second wave feminism 
are this, and they're pretty ambitious. So reproductive rights, um, end employment discrimination. So all of these limitations with jobs. Um, one of the readings for today mentioned that less than 10% of doctors and attorneys in the early 1960s were women. End employment discrimination, gain financial equity for a lot of obvious reasons, but a lot of that also has to do with access to freedom and mobility. Um, educational access, okay, in, this, in these rules that restrict schools to being only for men. Um, and then, of course, this cultural aspect of two. Um, women's liberation. Free themselves of cultural norms and expectations that inherently constrict women's roles in society. And one thing we've got to understand here, too, is that this is not just a binary. One, it's not all women who are pushing for second-wave feminism at all. We'll talk about one of the women who was an important opponent of second-wave feminism. And it's not all men that are just fighting against it. There were plenty of male um, advocates of second-wave feminism, too. So let's start with uh, reproductive rights by looking at the pill. So, one of the most important inventions in modern American history, and we don't think of it that way often because it's not, you know, steel or it doesn't fly or it doesn't shoot or anything like that, it doesn't blow anything up, um, but the pill is absolutely essential throughout much of the rest of the course and, of course, to this point in time in our own lives. In 1960, the FDA approved the pill for contraceptive use by the public. 1962, 1.2 million American women were on it. By 1963, it went up to 2.3 million. By 1965, it was up to 6.5 million. Um, At that moment in 65, it had become the most popular form of birth control for women in America. Now, of course, many of you understand this quite well, but the pill offers a lot of benefits for women. Okay, it gives them more power over their reproductive lives. It allows them to discreetly control the number of children that they have. Um, It's birth control that is effective and does not rely on a man's cooperation. And it's not just for single women by any means, right? A lot of married women also take the pill because it enables them to to take control of the size of their family. That's not just a decision about how many babies you want to have. That's an economic decision. That's a health decision. And that's certainly a labor decision if you think about women's roles in the household with the kitchen. Um, More people would have used the pill, but it was not legal everywhere, And I know that's hard for us to wrap our head around in our own day and age, right? So the pill was actually outlawed in several states until 1965. Enter some of our activists. Enter Ellen Griswold. So, I'm sorry, Estelle Griswold. Estelle Griswold, who you see here on the right, was the director of Planned Parenthood in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, The state of Connecticut had this old law um, passed in 1879 that made it illegal to use a contraception or to assist in helping advise others how to use or access contraceptions. So based on that old law, you could be fined and or receive a light prison sentence for helping people use contraception. With the support of Planned Parenthood, the national branch, Griswold purposely decides to challenge this law. And so she and a doctor at Yale, they open up a birth control clinic that provides contraceptive services to married couples. And in order to avoid sort of the stigma of what it might mean to to help single women, they choose to work with married couples. So they are, of course, charged with violating the Connecticut state law. And then they decide to challenge that ruling based on the constitutionality of the law. Goes all the way up the ladder, goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1965, the Supreme Court rules in the favor of Estelle Griswold and her colleagues in Griswold versus Connecticut. 
The ruling is largely based on the Ninth Amendment to the Constitution, although a lot of other amendments are invoked as well. But it's about individual rights. <clears throat> this is what one of, part, of the, part of the Ninth Amendment says. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be constructed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Basically means that rights that are implied but not stated can also be rights. So the thinking behind this whole logic of deciding Griswold versus Connecticut is that it's individual couples should have the freedom and the right to decide whether or not they are going to use contraceptives. Not the state government and not the federal government. It's about private family life. That's who gets to make the decision. And so it's a major victory in terms of access to contraception. Um, it, it prevents states from forbidding the use of the pill, um, gives women, married and unmarried, greater access to birth control, and it also serves as a forerunner to Roe v. Wade, which is, of course, much more famous. In 1970, a woman with the fictional name of Jane Roe filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade, the district attorney of Dallas County, Texas, over the anti-abortion law in that county. Um, before Roe, abortion was, as I mentioned at the start of class here today, was widely illegal, unless you could have a panel of doctors essentially write you a note or approve of an abortion in cases that were needed to save the life of a woman. So that does not mean, of course, that women did not have abortions. Um, women with, ac with access to doctors had abortions off the books. Others went to underground providers because they were so desperate, which, of course, could be incredibly dangerous. Part of the, um, part of the protests surrounding reproductive access focused on basically saying that, look, abortions are going to happen anyway. It's better if they occur above ground as opposed to underground. Um, we know throughout the course of American history that women are going to have abortions. It's just going to happen whether or not there's an open market for it or not. Um, so if they were legal, perhaps they would be safer is one of the arguments that activists are making. In 1953, a sexologist at Indiana conducted a survey of women and found that 22% of married women had had an abortion. His data, this is of course part of the Kinsey report and the Kinsey studies, his data is incredibly flawed. We don't actually know any way to actually check it. Um, we don't know because, because of the nature of it, but clearly some women were having abortions, but it wasn't something that people talked about openly um, with their friends all the time. These things were sort of hidden. Of course, people were having them for a number of different reasons. Um, financial reasons, they're maybe not with their partner anymore, they had too many children already, they had bad timing, fetal anomalies, the health of the mother, the baby may not live. And, you know, when we have these conversations now, we tend to focus on the extreme cases, but every single case, of course, back then, like it is now, is individual. Um, every single case is hard, and it should be hard. But what Roe versus Wade did in 1973 was it decided, similar to Griswold versus Connecticut, that it was not up to the government to make these decisions for women. So in the final decision, the court, they spoke of a number of different presidents, including Griswold versus Connecticut, which was cited, I believe, 10 times in the final Roe decision. And they spoke of another president. I'm going to quote directly from the decision of Roe v. Wade. The right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted government intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting a person as the decision whether to bear or beget a child. And of course, they ultimately con conclude, and I quote, that right necessarily includes the right of a woman to decide whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. So in terms of a legal matter, all of these ethical debates we have about abortion today, um, you all saw, of course, the protests that were out on, on Polk Place a couple weeks ago. How many of you saw those? Okay, so 
obviously there's a lot of conversations happening out there. Um, they're using a certain sort of tactic. But legally, it's not about morality or religion. It's just not. There's a question that individuals certainly have to deal with. But when Roe v. Wade was decided, it's a question of choice and authority. It's a question of who gets to make this incredibly dif difficult choice. Who has the authority to make this incredibly difficult choice? So it's not about what those people think. The law as it stands today is about what individual actors think. Um, anybody have any questions so far? Okay. Something that's an incredible coincidence, I'd say, is not many people realize this, but Roe is decided on the same exact day that pre former President Lyndon B. Johnson died in Texas, January 22nd, 1973. So here's the headline for the Washington Post on that particular day. Lyndon B. Johnson dies at 64, <clears throat> and then Supreme Court allows early stage abortions. And of course, they're also talking about the Vietnam War at the same time. Um, pretty big news day. So let's move on to employment discrimination. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act, when it was passed, um, to sabotage the act, a couple of legislators who were against the act decided to insert a gender clause, thinking that that would sort of cause a lot of people to basically not vote for the act. Um, that backfired. The act got passed anyway. But it also, in terms of what it did for race, which we've talked about in the class, it also made it illegal to discriminate based on sex. Okay? And so, initially, a lot of women's organizations are pretty optimistic that this will be enforced. Um, but when it is not, of course, a group of women in 1966 found an organization called the National Organization for Women. So th now, NOW is founded in June of 1966 at the third annual conference of commissions on the status of women in Washington, D.C., um, by, its made, by its first major organizational meeting in 1966, it was still pretty small, just had about 300 members, but by the early 70s, it had grown to roughly 40,000 members. And now's primary purpose is to create pressure to enforce, to pressure local governments and the federal government to enforce Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, okay, which made it illegal to discriminate based on sex as well as race. So there's this, legislati this legislative basis there already, right? You can challenge the law based on what you already know is going on. Um, they just have to go out and sort of prove it. So they're going to fight legally for women in terms of job discrimination, housing discrimination, college admission, admission discrimination, and so on and so forth. So even beyond that, they expand more fully. Um, they, they are lobbyists. They deliver speeches. They take part in demonstrations. They vote, of course, they conduct boycotts, and they invoke politics to make sure that Title VII is, is enforced. Um, one of the first things that they do, and they're pretty successful right away, is they help fight sex-segregated help-wanted ads in local New York City papers. So a lot of the help-wanted ads would say, we want a man for this job, we want a woman for this job, quite explicitly discriminating, and they helped fight against that and got that removed from the New York City papers. Um, they're also the first national organization to publicly endorse the legalization of abortion. Um, in 1968, now member Shirley Chisholm becomes the first black woman elected to Congress. Uh, but most of their contributions are sort of after the 1960s. Um, the Equal Credit Act, Title IX, um, proving employment discrimination. They win thousands of women back pay, that sort of a thing. But they're this big sort of watchdog against gender-based job discrimination, and they're a vanguard of second-wave feminism. So second-wave feminism also has a number of sort of cultural and intellectual goals. And there's a whole 
series of different protests where people um, people show up to talk about different things happening in society that are problematic for women. Okay, they want to expand this idea of women beyond not only just sort of homemakers, wives, mothers, that sort of a thing, but also beyond that of a, just sheer sex objects. Um, so here's an image of women protesting outside the 1968 Miss America pageant in Atlantic City, New Jersey. So this pageant, of course, is going on. You all have seen Miss America pageant. You understand what it's largely about. Um, you know, there's different talent contests and all that, but a lot of it is, you know, the women march across stage in a variety of outfits. And so these women showed up in 1968 to protest. What do you all see here in terms of their protest and sort of this tactic? I wonder what you all make of that. What's the argument here? They're emphasizing the dehumanization of women that the, uh, the Miss America like, perpetuates. Okay, yeah. Other observations. What do y'all what do y'all make of this? Looking at the physical attributes versus the mind, pretty much. Is this a little too far, you think, or what do you think? So it's this this um <clears throat> this chart, right? You all have seen the chart of you go to a steakhouse and they show you where the, all, obviously all the cuts are from, and they're sort of mocking it with this, right? that a woman is basically like a cow being reduced to the different parts of her body that should be celebrated at the Miss America cattle auction, as they say. So the argument, of course, is that women here are being treated merely as sex objects, that there is a major problem with the culture of the Miss America pageant. And, of course, this is just one, this is just one thing in many different sorts of protests that people have a problem with. Um, they want to really have women portrayed more for their minds, for their ambitions, for you know, who they are as more complete people as opposed to this America, Miss America protests. And this draws a great deal of attention, right? This is covered in every major national publication. And um, you know, it gets this incredible backlash, too, where people are like, well, these are just beautiful women. They're doing their thing. There's a talent part of it. You know? And it's just you know, an enormous controversy. But anyway, this is sort of what we're seeing, right? Sort of more open, direct protests against these depictions of women in more traditional ways that... I mean, think back to some of the ads that we talked about. Of course, they're protesting some of those as well. Um, a lot of this action leads to some people to be more careful about the way that women are depicted in magazines and advertisements. Of course, that's not an issue that we've moved entirely beyond, but there's a little bit of it. But we also get um, expanded access to different programs that help women intellectually, um, especially for college campuses. I think the, the UNC Women's Center or the Department of Women's Studies opens in 1976, all over the country, you get women's studies departments that open right at this exact moment in the late 1960s uh, throughout the early to mid-1970s. They also protest and call for what's known as the Equal Rights Amendment. So the late 1960s, women's rights activists do gain some ground here um, in terms of adding a new amendment to the Constitution that deals specifically with sex and sex discrimination. Okay? The Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA for short. So this idea is actually pretty old. This idea had gone back to all the way back in the 1920s. And it was really revived in the early 1960s with the National Organization of Women picking up this fight to once again call for this Equal Rights Amendment. <clears throat> um, supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment, they argued that the Constitution needed a unique amendment that dealt specifically with gender and sex discrimination. Um, current Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1973 argued this, and I quote, the Equal Rights Amendment, in sum, 
would dedicate the nation to a new view of the rights and responsibilities of men and women. It firmly rejects sharp legislative lines between the sexes as constitutionally tolerable. Instead, it looks toward a legal system in which each person will be judged on the basis of individual merit and not on the basis of an unalterable trait of birth that bears no necessary relationship to need or ability. Um, but, of course, the ERA was not universally popular. It met a great deal of resistance. And one of the most important figures in the resistance to the ERA is this woman, Phyllis Schlafly. So Phyllis Schlafly is a longtime conservative from St. Louis, Missouri. She was born in 1924. She was a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. She also has a master's degree in government from Radcliffe College. And then she also had a law degree from Washington University in St. Louis. So she has three college degrees. She is an incredibly exceptional woman, both in terms of her public-facing nature, but then also certainly her education. And one of the issues that's so interesting with Phyllis Schlafly is many of, much of what women are arguing for, Phyllis Schlafly has already achieved, right? Going and getting a law degree from Washington University in St. Louis was not normal for a woman who, being, who was born in 1924. Yet she uses this very same educational achievement of her own to become sort of this enemy of the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1960s and the 1970s. We're going to talk about her more on Wednesday. She's going to come back up. But she has a lot of different thoughts about equal rights, about sex discrimination, about um, sexual harassment in the workplace. She becomes famous in the 1970s as a leading critic of second-wave feminism. She says that a woman's role is in the home. Um, and that the 1950s system, this idea behind the kitchen debate that we just talked about, that's exactly how it should be. And not only that, it was actually great for women and families to have this protected status, right, where you could enjoy all of the modern appliances, where you could enjoy the safety, where you could enjoy this unique role that women had in the household that was provided for them by not only their husbands, but the American system of capitalism. Um, she does not think that women need to work and that women need to even worry about equal rights in the workplace. She doesn't think that women who have children in particular and who are married need to work. She says that a lot of the problems that are described by the second wave feminists aren't actually legitimate concerns. Um, for example, she has a particular view of sexual harassment. She says, and I quote, sexual harassment on the job is not a problem for virtuous women. So she suggests that it's the women who experience sexual harassment in the workplace experience that because they dress in a provocative manner. But that if you are a, a Christian woman who dresses conservatively, then you just don't have that problem, okay? Um, she also accuses second-wave feminism of being anti-male and accuses it also of being a path toward homosexuality. And her most direct battle is against this Equal Rights Amendment. She actually founds an organization named Stop Taking Our Privileges, with the acronym STOP right here. And she argues that women, again, have this protected status and that the Equal Rights Amendment would undermine this status in the country. She says it would expose um, women to the military draft, which would also in turn make the American military weaker. She says that it would hurt families by nullifying widows' benefits and lead to gender-neutral bathrooms, one of her predictions. Um, and she also, she also, she's not alone, certainly. A lot of labor organizers in different companies also worry that it would undermine gender-specific laws. So ultimately, the ERA is never um, passed. The House passed it in 1971. The Senate passed it the following year. And this Equal Right Amendment 
in part read, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. But what happened was that not enough states ratified the amendment for the Equal Rights Amendment to be added to the Constitution. Okay? There was a period in which the, the um, amendment would expire. Not enough states ratified the amendment, and ultimately it was defeated as the deadline was expired. So we do not have an Equal Rights Amendment in the United States of America today, despite there being a good bit of energy initially at first. But we do have some real clear results from second-wave feminism. So 1963, an Equal Pay Act. Griswold versus Connecticut, obviously, 1965. Um, the National Organization of Women. Shirley Chisholm's election to Congress, 1968. Again, first black woman elected to Congress. First woman elected to Congress was actually 1917. Um, a woman from the state of Montana, out west, when a lot of women could vote um, before they could in other parts of the country. Roe v. Wade is seen as a great victory for second-wave feminism in, in many people's eyes. 1974, we get an act, the Equal Credit Act, which ends this sort of discriminatory practice of denying people credit, not only based on their sex or gender, but also based on race. And, of course, women's studies courses and departments, I'm sure many of you will encounter those during your time here, are also a direct outcome of second-wave feminism. Um, but, of course, as you all know... This does not solve every single problem that women face in our society, but it is sort of a major leap forward at this moment that a new generation is emerging. One of the things that I think is so interesting and instructive for our own society today is the way that this conversation is still happening. And so the fight for the Equal Rights Amendment itself is not over. This is a picture from a march of 2017. Okay, there are marches all over the country this year, next year, so on and so forth, where people are still calling for this Equal Rights Amendment to be added to the Constitution. Of course, like I said, this goes back to the 1920s, but it really picked up in the 1960s, and people are still calling for it. Um, Of course, women in recent years have organized to participate in activities at levels that we have not seen since the 1960s, most notably July, January 21st, 2017, somewhere north of 5 million people participated in the Women's March across the United States of America. We'll talk more about that, but I just want to talk about it in the scope of the 1960s. It's a direct continuation on some of the things that people were advocating for in the 1960s. Reproductive rights, this ERA, job discrimination, um, the pay gap, that sort of a thing. So many of the same issues, even though there were some victories, People are still fighting for those things today. And I think the most interesting thing, perhaps, about recent demonstrations is the size. And again, we'll talk more about why this happens. But the Women's March that occurred on January 21st, 2017, was the largest civil rights demonstration in the history of the world. Okay? So it's a pretty big number. It's obviously in the news all over the place. We have over almost 130 women in Congress now. Um, We'll get back to this more as we get toward the present in the class. So at the same time all of this is happening, second wave feminism is rising, um, we also get the most visible gay rights movement in American history to that point in time that was also emerging. So um, we haven't talked a lot about it, we just haven't had the room in this class, but homosexuals and transgender people had been severely repressed for the entirety of American history, as you all know. Um, Some specific details, so homosexuality was often seen as an illness or a crime, Um, You could be whisked off to a psychiatric hospital or thrown in jail for being suspected of homosexual activity. Um, Homosexuals were often classified as sexual deviants along with child molesters and rapists. Homosexuality was actually designated a mental disorder by the American Psychiatry Association. 
Um, in all states, sodomy, which directly targeted homosexual behavior, they thought, um, was illegal. In some states, oral sex was illegal. There was also specific legislation targeting homosexuals. And then, of course, there's the discrimination. LGBTQ people experienced severe discrimination all over parts of society in many of the same ways that women and African Americans and people of other minority races had. 1953, the Eisenhower administration actively barred gays and lesbians from all federal jobs. The FBI actually kept a list of people that it knew or suspected to be homosexuals. Um, LGBTQ people were subject to employment and housing discrimination. And, of course, they were constantly harassed, um, police raiding gay bars, beating people up, arresting them. And, of course, these folks were subject to extraordinary violence. Um, if you were gay, you really couldn't live openly in many parts of America. And people tended to congregate in cities such as New York or San Francisco where they would have a more close-knit community. So on June 28, 1969, police entered a gay bar in the Stonewall Inn in New York City. And the police were there to raid the bar. This happened all the time, all over the country, police raiding gay bars for various reasons. They'd usually beat people up. Um, sometimes they stole money, confiscate some of the booze, that sort of a thing. And this sort of behavior is happening at Stonewall on June 28, 1969. They're sort of strong-arming this woman who is a lesbian. And she basically says, you know, what are you all going to do about this? Can I get some help here? And the, the patrons of the bar start to openly resist the police officers, right? They don't necessarily, you know, pull out guns and point them back at them, but they start to resist the arrests. They start to um, try and escape out into the streets. They start to push back on the police officers. And as one patron observed, and I quote, we all had a collective feeling like we'd had enough of this kind of shit. Um, the uprising lasts for several days, led to a general resurgence in gay rights and visibility. So it's huge news all over the country. Um, it's not the first of these by any stretch of the imagination. There was actually something similar that occurred in San Francisco in 1966. But it has this, this heightened awareness because of this cause that it lends to gay rights. Um, things that start to happen in the months immediately after the famous Stonewall uprising in 1969 is there's, there's this whole wave of activist pro-gay newspapers that start in different cities across the country. Um, we get different organizations such as the Gay Activist Alliance within a few months. Um, the following year, the first pride parades, um, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, they occur on the anniversary of Stonewall. And so part of what's happening here is that it's a sort of gay rights movement that had existed, but it was a bit more dormant, right? It was not a community that always knew who each other were. It was very dangerous to be a part of it. But it's sort of becoming more out in the open after Stonewall especially, right? It's exposed to much of the rest of America. And what we have here are so many allies start to participate, especially in pride parades and marches. And then we get a bunch of firsts that occur in the years almost, that occur in the 1960s, but then especially in the years after Stonewall. Um, we start to get openly elected gay officials. The first one is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, of course, Harvey Milk's famous campaign for city supervisor of San Francisco. In 1975, a gay rights bill is actually introduced into Congress. Um, it fails. We still don't have something quite like that today, but it's introduced in Congress. 1974, the American Psychiatric Association changes their conclusion that homosexuality is a mental illness. 1974, the American Psychiatric Association says, okay, homosexuality is not actually a mental illness. And in 1982, Wisconsin became the first state to ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. And, of course, many of these debates and battles continue well into our present day. So let's go ahead and we're going to wrap up. 
Um, the 1960s as a whole, if you think about them as a whole, we've been talking about this for several weeks here, but just think about taking all this in. We really started the lecture right before the midterm with John F. Kennedy, the Cold War, and that whole thing. Um, but it is this era, even though it is sort of benign and pretty stable for most people, it's this era of incredible dramatic change. America looks so much different on the other end of the decade. And um, we've talked about a lot, the civil rights movement, great society, Vietnam War, all the massive protests, women's liberation. We didn't have time in this class, but there's all sorts of different power movements, okay? Different groups who had not had their sort of goals satisfied by the civil rights movement start their own sort of power movement. And it's not just black people. Black power is the most famous one. We also get American Indian movement, red power, um, yellow power, Asian American movements in California, brown power, Hispanic uh, movements all over the West, especially. All sorts of new freedoms that people gained throughout the 1960s. This issue of counterculture. We didn't talk about hippies a whole lot in this class, but you all know the sort of essence of what the, of what the hippies are. Um, for most people, it's just sort of growing your hair out longer and wearing colorful clothing. For other people, it's taking acid, you know, and riding around on a technicolor bus and, you know, threatening to infect entire water supplies with acid. Um, but then, of course, there's all this sort of chaos and confusion and it's not quite as benign and peaceful as many people remember the 1950s to be. And then, of course, there are the deaths. Um, as Paul mentioned, President Kennedy shot and killed in 1963. All the people killed fighting for the civil rights movement. We talked about the four little girls in Birmingham, the three missing workers in Mississippi. And then, of course, all of the people killed in Vietnam, the American soldiers, the innocent Vietnamese civilians, all of this, people are consuming just incredible quantities of death in the news all the time. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is shot and killed in Memphis. And on June 6th, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's little brother, who had announced a run for president against the sitting president, Lyndon B. Johnson, was killed in California while campaigning for president. I just want to share, as we get down to the end here, I just want to share with you a letter written by one North Carolinian to his senator in the summer of 1968, just 12 days after Bobby Kennedy was shot in California. Um, it's written by a white man, father of five from North Carolina. And I quote, I'm sick of crime everywhere. I'm sick of riots. I'm sick of poor people demonstrations, in parentheses, black, white, red, yellow, purple, green, or any other color, exclamation point. I'm sick of the U.S. Supreme Court ruling for the good of a very small part rather than the whole of our society. I'm sick of the lack of law enforcement. I'm sick of Vietnam. I'm sick of hippies, LSD, drugs, and all the promotion the news media give them, end quote. And so a lot of people at the end of the 1960s are wondering, well, whatever happened to this? If you recall, when we started after the midterm, Richard Nixon, end of World War II, coming home, comfortable house, comfortable life, wife, children, dog, whatever happened to this. And so what we're going to see is largely a backlash um, to the different changes of the 1960s, some more specific than others. There are certainly parts of the 1960s, such as the revolution and the end of Jim Crow that people accept, but there are other parts, such as Roe versus Wade and a lot of second-wave feminism that people simply do not accept. So on Wednesday, we will pick up here with the 1968 election, where we get another third-party challenger. Guess which one it is? <clears throat> guy with the stars and the bars there. Um, the Deep South once again leaves, says to hell with the Democratic and Republican parties, and goes after another third party. We'll talk more about that on Wednesday.
Okay, any questions? Got a comment. Okay. My wife uh, graduated from high school at 62. She could not apply to Carolina because of her gender. <clears throat> wow. What made, this is just going off the 60s, not necessarily this lecture exactly, but what made the Vietnam War in like the late 50s not as, I guess we'd say severe as it was uh, taken in during the 60s? So just the number of troops that the U.S. had going. Um, you know, the draft wasn't fully instituted really until like 1965. And so there were a lot of advisors. The United States had people in Vietnam. That book, The Quiet American, that Graham Greene book, I don't know if you all have ever heard of that, but the CIA was in Vietnam. Um, but the sheer number of people going meant that it didn't command a lot of people's attention in the way that it later did. Anything else? All right, great. I will see you all on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.